The neighborhood was an amazing place to be the days and weeks after the tornado. There was a curfew in place at some time, but we were allowed through we were residents. And I remember we pulled up to our driveway or pulled up, parked where we parked and walked up to our driveway. I stood there looking at it and like, oh my gosh, how is this ever going to get fixed? It's hard to describe the amount of debris and litter that was just everywhere, you know. And pretty soon, I was almost like magical. It's like, rub the jar three times and your wish is granted. People started walking up the driveway with rakes and bags and clothes and chainsaws, and they never stopped. And then that same day around lunchtime, I'm like, oh my gosh, I've got all these people and it's lunch. What am I going to do? And the Red Cross walked up the driveway with water and food and people had brought, and I know the city um, worked with people to make sure that this could happen. They, you know, there were food trucks that were out in the street every day for weeks, um, you know, just to help make sure that people were taken care of. Amazing sight. The devastating tornado that struck on April 9th, 1999, brought much of the city of Montgomery to its knees. In the days, weeks, and months that followed, countless individuals and communities reached out their hands to lift Montgomery up once again. In this episode, we'll share how Montgomery and its residents began to heal through the help of others. I'm Greg Leader, and this is Weathering the Storm. Episode 3, The Recovery. Somehow the word got out. That's Ellen Mavripolis. You may remember her story in episode one about how she and her family lost their home in the tornado. And they were letting residents come back to certain points so that we were able to connect with each other and figure out, well, where do we go next? Some things were happening at this church or that church where you could get a meal or you could have, we were having a meeting to talk about, here's where you're going to find out information about insurance or SBA loans or whatever it may be. So I felt like we were pretty well connected. The city was amazing. The school district was amazing. All the resources that they, I assumed that they were kind of the, the point people bringing things in and organizing so forth and so forth. It's probably a blur to me really who did what. And there were a lot of people that we crossed paths with that I wouldn't remember having talked to other than I know that people did a lot for us and they were there and they were just, they appeared and, and they did, they, they did all the heavy work. Remember Montgomery's city manager, Cheryl Hilbert from episode two, she quickly returned to the city to assess the situation and provide leadership to the recovery effort. When we drove through, um, it was eerily silent. I put in place a curfew um, to protect the area, the residents, uh, not only from gawkers, but from uh, would-be thieves. Um, it really created a, a very 
strange, eerie feeling of loneliness and, and calm um, when a very short time before that it had been anything but that. Um, there was a sea of uh, satellite television trucks up at the high school. I mean, it was unbelievable how quickly they arrived and how many of them there were. Um, and again, it was different how the news was reported back then. So, so this was a, a big deal. The media was helpful at first. Obviously, they told us a tornado was coming and they were there getting the word out. Our area hadn't really had an experience like that. We were calling ourselves Ground Zero at the time, long before 9-11 happened, where that had a, you know even bigger meaning. So it was helpful in terms of getting the word out, um, but then it kind of evolved into, I felt like in some ways it was about the media's story and not so much about helping us as it was their story. Even though our home had been destroyed and imploded and, you know, totaled and we were going to have to go through this whole process of rebuilding, it was still our home and everyone felt that way and there was still a front door even though the roof was missing and yet we would come back, you know, to help to start salvaging things or start doing whatever we were doing and there would be media inside our home. <laughs> it's like, okay, it's not a public building now just because we had a tornado. Um, so it just felt like at some points there was a definite invasion of our space and privacy. They would show up at all times. I mean, because our process went on for quite a while of trying to clean up, salvage, rebuild. It went on for, you know, weeks and months. And frequently we would have media show up out of nowhere asking questions with their cameras, with their, you know, their microphones in our faces. Um, they would show up at our children's school. And my kids were at Mapledale at the time. And really, I appreciated very much the principal's perspective that this was their safe harbor, that this was, they were actually, and she, I was involved in a lot of school-related activities as well, um, on boards and so forth, and so I had a pretty good ongoing uh, relationship with the administration there, and I know um, that they and the teachers were actually having to do a lot to keep the media at bay at school as well, so that they wouldn't come in and interview our children and ask for inappropriate questions. Our, our children were going through a very traumatic experience. Their lives were uprooted. They were, most of them, many of them were diagnosed with PTSD down the road. We were in just the midst of it all and the media was even going there. So as much as, you know, it's just a double-edged sword. The media can be very helpful, um, but sometimes it became about their story and, and we just had to be careful not to get sucked into that because it wasn't really in our best interest. Um, we had, I just felt like the emotional needs of the children in particular were most important. I, I couldn't get over how many government officials want to come and tour a disaster area when you're trying to work it and clean it up and help people who have lost everything. That's Fire Chief Paul Wright. We got to the point where we basically said, if you are providing services and, and help to this effort, by way of using, you know, you know, your public works department or, you know, if you're a state agency, ODOT and all that, if you have a hand in letting that happen, we'll give you a tour. But if you're a jurisdiction and you just want to come and look and you're not helping us, no, we're not giving you a, a, a tour, you know, so, but we had people from local governments, from state government, and then the, the, even had the vice president come in, um, which was um, interesting because that really shut down the whole operations for a day because of security measures. And again, all the responders were just sitting there thinking, 
you know, this is just killing us here because we're trying to get some work done and we have to stop so this guy can walk through the area and that. The side the city's looking at is, well, maybe this is just a step that we have to go through to get FEMA funding, which then we never got the FEMA funding, but that's a whole other story. Al Gore came to town, and we got a phone call, me, myself, and a couple of other people, to come meet with him as, like, neighborhood representatives. And we were told how to, how to dress and what to wear, which I thought they told us specifically to come dressed as if you look like you've been cleaning up, you know, so that... And I'm thinking, okay, there's a, there's a photo op, you know, and it's, it's not about politics. It's about a photo op, you know, that was just kind of weird. Offers of help came very quickly uh, from other cities. Um, we could never repay the 35 local governments uh, from the area that helped for weeks and even months. Um, and those are some of my greatest memories from the event. Um, I remember one of the first calls that I took um, was from a very good friend who was a, a manager in a neighboring community who says, um, I don't have a lot of guys. He says, I need one to strike ball fields today, but you can have everybody. So that, I think that kind of speaks to how, how cities get along and how cities help one another. At, at the end of, of of day two, I'm walking, we shut things down because we would put a curfew on at night. We met Tom Wolf from the city's fire department in episode two. And um, I'm back at the emergency operations and uh, this guy walks up to me and he looks like a Marine drill instructor. I mean, he has got a uniform on, he's, he looks good, he's got a white brim hat pulled down. He goes, excuse me. He goes, can you help me out? And I said, I'll see what I can do. He goes, my name is Sergeant Mike Codwell. I'm with the Lebanon Correctional Institute, and I want to let you know we have for your uh, disposal inmates that will assist you in any type of task that you need. He goes, we will bring these inmates out. They will work all day and do whatever you need done. And I sort of took a step back, and I said, well, Sergeant Caldwell, I said, uh, thank you much, but I don't know. This is Montgomery, and I'm thinking, we don't really, I don't really want inmates going through here, you know, you know, and, and I was a little bit uneasy with that. And I said, what, what kind of crime did these folks do? And he goes, I can assure you that they are all non-violent crimes. Uh, he goes, mostly stealing and uh, uh, looting. And he, and he gives me a wink, you know, and it, it's like, <laughs> I sort of stepped back and laughed and I said, you know what? We need help tomorrow because we need more people to help out. And once again, it's one of those things where the decision is going to be on me, you know. I said, okay, Sergeant. I said, have your folks here at 8 o'clock at Sycamore High School. We'll assign you with some USAR guys, and your folks will be going through and helping helping people get stuff out of the house. Because, yes, sir, we'll be there at 8 a.m. Sure enough, next day we're out there in the field, 5 till 8. Here comes these three white vans. They pull up and all these inmates hop out of the van and on the, their uh, coveralls in bold print it says Lebanon Correctional Institute and I see that and I'm thinking I just made my last decision as an employee of the city of Montgomery because people are going to see this that just lost their home and everything and now we're bringing inmates in 
they're not going to be happy. I'm like, oh, what was I thinking last night when I told him yes? I said, uh, come here, Sergeant. He goes, yes, sir. I said, look, we're going to hook you up with our guys, but what I need you to do is have all your guys put these vests on, you know, so we know they're part of our group. That wasn't the reason at all. I just wanted to hide the name on the back, and he knew that too. And he goes, no problem, sir. We'll have them all wear those vests, you know. But the, the, the long and, and short of that, something we didn't expect is these guys performed great. They did a fantastic job. Um, people were thanking them for all, all the help. Uh, they loved the food that we were getting at that time. And we used them for two or three days, and they did just absolutely great. And, and I think they got a lot out of this, too, as, as well as we did with them. And it worked out so well that I know the service department went ahead and used them for a long time to help out with the long-term stuff, getting you know all the trees up and debris and all that. So, so that was that was a that ended up being a win-win. Remember Shannon Caldwell from episode two? She and her brother Ryan Cook lost their parents in the tornado. I honestly, when I think about the people that were on the ground clearing debris away. And one of my stickiest memories will be for sure of some people who had been released from jail. They were wearing jumpers and they were clearing things out of the basement and they were singing hymns down there. And, you know, literally a man who had recently just that day come from jail to help clear this problem He has a handful of money and jewelry and says to me, is this yours? Take a look. Do you recognize any of this? Did you guys keep cash in the house? And I mean, if that doesn't just show you the best in people, nothing will. So when you really do see the worst things, sometimes they really do bring out the best in people. And that's priceless because we don't get a chance to see the best in people very much. When we do, I mean, it's worth pausing and just going, that was amazing. The residents and businesses of the community were rocks of strength um, during this time. They helped one another through volunteering, donations, and just about any kind of support that you could imagine. The residents and homeowners um, in the area that um, were was directly hit by the uh, by the tornado, but who did not sustain damage themselves, um, were unbelievable. Uh, they created foam trees, remained in contact with those uh, who lost their homes and had moved elsewhere temporarily. Uh, they served as our communication link with uh, those that were most impacted. Um, They offered help in cleaning up properties and they worked tirelessly to help their neighbors. Um, They had a a weekly dinner for anyone who wanted to show up. And uh, sometimes they would have an inspirational speaker. Sometimes they would pray together. Sometimes they just talked about baseball or whatever was going on uh, in the area at the time. We tried to have staff people attend this uh, whenever we could um, to, to show our support for what they were doing and also to share information and, and answer questions that they had. Um, it, it quickly became something that wasn't a have to do, but something that we wanted to do. 
I'm Denny Reed Miller. I was a resident on Shadow Hill Way on April 9th of 1999. We received a call. My wife and I were in Brown County, Indiana at a bed and breakfast. Wendy's uh, close friend said, your, your neighborhood just got wiped out by a tornado. And our first thought are two girls. We knew that Lauren, my stepdaughter, was at home. She worked at WCPO at the time. And we knew Beth was staying with a, a neighbor, but we had no idea. We did hear on the radio that we, you know people were killed. And of course, you can just imagine we're a little on the, sorry, <laughs> on the, uh, a little concerned. Ironically, we were uh, we, we left the bed and breakfast, uh, speeding the speed limit. Unfortunately, a lady hydroplane because the streets are still wet from the rain that went through in Indiana, and she hit us at 55 miles per hour, and uh, on the driver's side, I was almost killed. Uh, and uh, I don't remember, I think we spun. The lady uh, went off the road and um, uh, she, she did survive the crash. So the policeman said, I'm gonna take you to the hospital. And I said, no, I gotta get home. So the uh, policeman took us to a car rental place. The car was uh, destroyed totally. Uh, the bumpers were off, all the windows were out. Uh, the back door on the uh, driver's side was totally bent in. So if somebody had been in that back seat, I survived by a fraction of a second. So uh, uh, we, we got back and it was very emotional. I did find out that uh, Lorna was okay at the house. Uh, we did have damage to the house. Uh, she was the first reporter in the nation to go out to uh, start uh, talking with people and she had a live feed uh, to WCPO. Uh, we did find out Beth was at a different part of, of the neighborhood and she was okay. The next day there was a, a news uh, meeting at St. Barnabas. Uh, I recommended that we start a, a volunteer committee uh, for people can sign up if they want to help. Uh, we eventually had 2,500 volunteers that uh, signed up for the program. And uh, fortunately, uh, that, that, that day too, Cheryl Hivers, the city manager, came to me and said, Denny, whatever you tell us what you need. And I uh, really worked very closely with the city for several weeks as we you know, got back on our feet. And a lot of small projects, everything from removal of trees, dead animals, uh, helping people find a lost jewelry, just anything that we could do to help out. The neat thing, we had, a, you know, fortunately we were able to get a sidewalk in our neighborhood and that uh, became a lifeline because there was so much traffic because of all the construction vehicles. Uh, a lot of people set up uh, where you could get water. Uh, St. Barnabas was just fantastic. American Red Cross was very instrumental in, in getting us back on our feet. And that really lasted for several months. Uh, I guess my, my favorite thing was working with the city uh, in crisis management. I, I was so impressed by what was going on uh, as far as the city you know, responding and the local communities, uh, fire and police. And uh, everybody was very, very cooperative. Statistically, I believe we had 58 homes destroyed or damaged in the Montgomery Woods area. And that's everything from you know, somebody losing a roof to complete devastation. And you name it, people were helping out, bringing food in, uh, for, uh, places for people to stay. We were able to get in con contact with the insurance companies to help individual families get through it. And uh, it was uh, quite, quite an event. I understand we, the city of Montgomery did receive special recognition uh, for you know what they did in the you know the, during the disaster in the cooperation of all the communities, it's uh, I think another shining light. And uh, eventually, we had a couple things happen. We have a monument 
which is now in uh, the uh, school property, Sycamore High School, uh, with a boulder and a plaque. We also have another plaque at the Johnson Nature Preserve. As you go into the city building, uh, you'll see the Cincinnati Inquirer. They did a uh, about how all this coming together. I called the Inquirer. The guy volunteered it, so it's now hanging up in the uh, city building. Uh, so, uh, and the uh, thing about tragedies, I mean, we always hear about the negative, but you know, it was a very positive, you know, uh, thing that happened to our. It kept our communities very, very close. There was just such an outpouring from every service agency that you've ever or never heard of, and the church, and just everybody, you know, from the way that the disaster relief workers themselves coordinated with local officials and fire and police the blockades and in the middle of all of that a youth group is there cleaning debris and somebody from the red cross is passing out chocolate dipped strawberries i mean it was like are you kidding me the red cross just held us in the palm of their hand we had a place to stay we didn't have to think about it they 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 provided a hotel room for us the church who we I mean, some of them were our mom and dad's church, but some of them were just the church of Montgomery. Brought, I mean, casseroles and just y- you name it. It was like days and days worth of food, you know? And that was my biggest takeaway, truly, was uh, the amazing power of people when they come together with no agenda at all but to just help one another wow, can you move a mountain? And even smile while doing it. You know, Brad and Amy Johnson and their beautiful family. That was my brother's young life leader. And when school ended, he needed a place to come. And they redid a room for Ryan so that he could still come back to Cincinnati. I mean, that was that was amazing to me. Ryan's youth group, they um, gathered together and they each wrote individual prayers. They gave us each of us a notebook. One was for Ryan and one was for me. And each child wrote a prayer for us. And for years, I read these prayers from these youth group kids. Even during some of the most tragic of moments, there are great examples of hope. Here's Ellen Mavripolis once again. One of my sons had a, um, a young kitten that had been a stray that came to us at Thanksgiving before the, the tornado. So it was still a very young kitten. Um, and she was missing. And it was maybe after day two or three, one of the, um, it was right before they told us we could go back in the house. One of the um, uh, fire department people, I think it was, they were giving the final walkthrough and they heard a kitten meowing in our house but it wouldn't come to him. And it had gone and lodged itself behind um, the toilet in just one of our small bathrooms. And so, but it wouldn't come to him. It was so terrified. So, but at least he was able to then tell me that, you know, we, we think you have a kitten. And I was able to go and she came to me. And I remember that phone call to my son, who was four and a half at the time. And, you know, calling to tell him that we found Natalie. Natalie. <laughs> 
this little boy's voice in my head, I'll never forget. He was like, I thought she was blowed away. <laughs> that was those words. I thought she was blown away. Coming up on the final episode of Weathering the Storm. You know, somebody said to me in the immediate period following the tornado, I mean, just within days after it, I mean, essentially, as soon as I got back to my house and my daughter, she said, you know what the good news is, Shannon? She said, this is, this is the beginning of your healing. People process things differently and trying to have space and room for people to have, you know, handle it how they need to. But I guess what I did learn is that people are more important than things. And I think we all know that, but I really know it. I really know it. And I, you know, we had this, it was funny. People would say, oh my gosh, you've got this great new house and everything is new. And oh my gosh, you know, kind of lucky you. And it's like, oh not so much. Not so much. And I'd go back to that day before in a minute. We would kind of gather every evening and go lot to lot looking at our, what were now lots. They were no longer our houses or our yards. We just called them lots and they'd been leveled and covered with dirt. And so the tornado happened in April. So by summer when everything is greening up again, um, but we all started noticing sunflowers popping up out of the middle of our dirt lots, out of nowhere. None of us had planted or ever had sunflowers, and we were all puzzled by that. But we started noticing them on almost every lot, and we would have a lot of them. And and we would have weeds and other things growing up, but there would be these sunflowers, and we all loved them, and we wondered where they came from. That's all next time on Weathering the Storm.